Morning, everyone. How's it going? You all all right? It's um, nice to be back. Uh, thank you for um, your prayers and for releasing me to go. I was in Uganda for two for eight days. Um, if you didn't know, um, I just got back last last Monday. Um, uh, we were in the north of Uganda for most of the trip, um, where there's been a pretty much a civil war in the south of Sudan. Four million people have been displaced. One million of those have come across the South Sudanese border into North Uganda. And there's a number of different camps. We were in Bidi Bidi camp, which was the biggest refugee camp in the world. 300,000 people in a refugee camp. And uh, we were trying to just make a video uh, and raise awareness for um, of, of what's going on there and raise up some prayer. So hopefully those videos will be going out um, over the next two or three weeks. And uh, we'll be able to stir up some prayer for just a dreadful situation there for many um, beautiful people that really just want to go home but are stuck um, in in camps in the north of Uganda. So it was great to be there, Fields of Life, with Katie, who's here, works for. And um, it was great to see some of the wells that we've been able to drill up there. It's amazing just how clean water can change people's lives. Um, we don't have access to that. So it was great to be there. Uh, thanks for your prayers. I didn't get my luggage for four days. So I was washing my boxer shorts uh, at the sink. Turning them, tur- no, I didn't turn them inside out, I promise. I, uh, <coughs> I, did, I did actually wash them. And um, uh, thankfully it came four, four, days, four days later. Um, but I, I was really looking forward to being back here this morning. Um, being away too, kind of... Uh, increases in affection in your heart for what the Lord's doing here, and um, I, I'm I'm choosing to believe in my short sleeves. I'm naming and claiming that spring is coming, um, uh, and you know as the clocks are going forward, uh, it maybe sounds partly cliche, but I, I I do believe that as we talk about spring springing forward, that um, God has been doing some wonderful things amongst us over the last two or three months. And I do feel like as we come towards Easter and beyond Easter, he wants us to spring forward into um, all that he's calling us here to in Portadown and the vision that he's given us. We're continuing at this uh, point to speak on our values and our key practices as a church. And so if you're you're not aware, that's what they are. We've been looking at the first two, really. Um, And some of just the key things that we've been saying by way of introduction, just to reiterate and hopefully reinforce in our hearts, is that first and foremost, we want to prioritize the presence of God. We honor most uh, importantly, the presence of Jesus in our midst. We want his presence to be our one pursuit because that's what we're created to know, the pursuit of his presence. God created us to walk with us, to have fellowship with us, to enjoy communion with us. And uh, and we want to honor that. The vision is Jesus. Yeah, uh, As we say in 24-7, obsessively, dangerously, undeniably, Jesus, yeah. We want to honor his presence amongst us. We want to learn as a people how to abide in him. The only way we're going to do anything fruitful is to abide in Jesus, yeah. To learn how to abide in him, to learn how to remain in him. We're created to walk in friendship with Jesus. And any mission, any mission without his presence is just marketing, right? Any mission without his presence is just marketing a brand. And we don't want to be that. We want to carry the presence of Jesus. And as we 
as we uh, as presence people, we then want to mobilize mission. We believe that the primary impulse of the church is mission. The presence that draws us into intimacy with God also propels us out to be involved with God in the world in which we live. And what Chris just shared at the end, I really sensed that actually too on the last song that Clara and the guys led us on there. And it was that, uh, it's that idea that the reckless love of God, like I, I think God's calling us to be a people that are incredibly reckless with our love, that we will look at situations where there's walls, there's no walls that we would not break down. There's no, um, I can't remember all the words now, but basically that chorus, not just about how we sing it, about just how God does it in our lives, how God pursues us, but that we would become that kind of a people. We would become image bearers of the God who pursues people with a relentless kind of love, that we would look at the gaps, that we would look at the darkness, that we would look at the places where nobody else is prepared to go, and we would go, because the love of God is so reckless, and the impulse of the love of God would be so deep and so strong with us and the love of Jesus inside us would be burning so fiercely that there would be nowhere that we would not be prepared to go. In fact, the places where nobody else will go, we will go there. Because that's who God is, that we would leave the 99. So we, if you're well-trained and well-discipled and carrying the love of Jesus, if all of that, and and we trust you, we will have no problem kicking you out (laughs) in the right sense of the word. We will have no problem you leaving the 99 here to go and reach the ones and the twos, because that's who God is. And as the church and as the body of Christ, we want to get better and better in that. And so the presence of God, the draw us into intimacy with him, this reckless love that we get wave after wave after wave of receiving in our own lives, somehow it propels us, it catapults us out into the lost and broken places. It doesn't catapult us to more Christian meetings. It doesn't catapult us to more just conferences. Not that there's anything wrong with those. We need some of those in our lives. But it catapults us to lost, broken people. We sit in coffee shops and we look across the table and something in our heart starts to well up because we see somebody come in that the Lord has just zoned in on our hearts with and goes, that's somebody I love. That's somebody I love right sitting across from you in the coffee shop or the person that's buying their groceries beside you at Tesco's that somehow our lives get disrupted and interrupted. Because the reckless love of God has disturbed us. It's wrecked us. We're never the same again. The ordinary kind of parts of our lives get completely messed up. It's totally inconvenient. Yeah, It kind of screws up your efficiency for how you're going to get through your day. Because somehow the love of God has captured your heart, burnt inside you so deeply that you can't sit in your seat. You can't stay there. And if it means... Initially, just going and paying for that coffee, that you'll do it. Because the love of God's reckless. It's wild. It's a consuming fire. It burns you up, but doesn't consume you like Moses at the burning bush. But it changes you and it transforms us. And so the presence, the presence isn't safe. It brings security to our lives, but it's not safe in the sense that it's cozy. It, it catapults us out. And this was our mandate originally, wasn't it? Our mandate was to carry carry the presence, to steward the presence from the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiply that sense of presence. But we didn't, sure we didn't. We uh, 
We sinned. Man, man sinned, and instead of multiplying blessing and presence, we multiplied sin. We multiplied destruction. We multiplied dysfunction. We multiplied all of those things, but in Jesus, praise God, everything's being fixed and put right and redeemed, and he is now making all things new. Yeah, Everything is getting reversed. That <clears throat> The curse brought on us, everything is being reversed. And so Ephesians 4 tells us that Jesus, who went lower than anybody else will ever go, will ever go has now gone higher than anybody will ever go. So Jesus, who went lower than anyone's ever gone. It's good to know that, isn't it? There's no place you have been where Jesus has not yet been. There's no place you can go where Jesus has not yet gone. You can't go lower than Jesus. He went lower than us all. So whatever you're going through at this moment, he knows it, he feels it, he's been there, he's experienced it, and he's carried your sorrows. And more than that, rather than just going there, he's come out of that place victorious, so that means you can as well. And he's went to the highest place above all else. Jesus has put all things under his feet. Do you know what the Greek for all is? Guess what? All. Yeah? He has put all things under his feet. And Ephesians 4 tells us, in order that he might fill the universe with his presence. The universe. That's not just the church, but the universe. He wants to fill all things with himself. And so, because of that, we can conclude a few things that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. We can conclude that God is a missionary. Missio Dei. God is one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. We can conclude that we are a sent people or an apostolic people is what that phrase means in Greek, a sent ones. We are a sent out people. We don't just do mission, but we are a mission. God is a missionary in which we join in, not that we do God's mission for him. Yeah, God is on a move. God is on a mission. It's not really like God has just subcontracted us in to give, us a, to give him a hand with his work. God is a sent one. The Spirit is moving out there, out beyond the walls of this building. The Spirit is at work. He's in your workplace every day. We just need to tune in to what he's doing and try and get joined in with the sent nature of God. And as, so as a church, we are a sent people joining God on his mission to reach the world. mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. God is a missionary God. And so God wants to, God loves the world. He wants to heal and restore and redeem the, as image bearers. And God goes and he wants us to go with us. And so we see the world as a broken humanity like us, who Jesus wants to redeem. And the message that we carry is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is coming with the inbreaking of his kingdom. Chris has been re-emphasizing this over the last few weeks. Jesus is King. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. But he also wants to come and establish his kingdom on the earth. That's ultimately how the story ends up. The kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. He's not just saving souls. He is doing that. He's making all things new. He's releasing healing holistically in body, soul, and spirit. And so the kingdom of God is not of this world, but it's for this world, right? I grew up up, uh, in a a church environment that 
that taught that the kingdom of God wasn't of this world and pretty much didn't want anything to do with this world. It was just like, we'll fly off and be part of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns to rescue us. But that's not very good theology. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but it is for this world. It's breaking into this world. It loves this world. And even though the powers of this world are at cross purposes to the kingdom of God, God still loves this world and the kingdom of God wants to establish itself on the world. And so we want to be a church where anything can happen. God can come with his presence and do whatever he wants to do amongst us in a church where everyone is welcome. And Nehemiah has given us such a great inspiration for this, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, because we realize how God gives us a vision and God gives us his vision for a city, uh, something uh, that uh, a city that's broken and lost through its own visions of how it can gain uh, success or become something. And so we want to see individuals redeemed, but we also want to see cities transformed. We want to supply the destiny of the city. That's what God has called us to. And we want to see nations discipled. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we, we, you know sometimes our, our mindsets, I feel constantly challenged with this, are so small. Jesus said, go and disciple what the nations, you know. And I know it has to start with ones and twos. Don't get me wrong. It has to be earth there. You know, sometimes some people are so content, you know, intent and change in the world that they can't start with one people. So we get that. But equally, sometimes we can, all we can think of is how we can get one or two people discipled. When Jesus said, no, I want you to disciple nations, whole people groups, whole people groups transformed, destinies changed by being a people sent by God on a mission. And so Nehemiah realized that the state of his city wasn't the original glory. And so we have after, like Nehemiah was, what is the redemptive root of this town? What is the redemptive thing? What was God's plans and purposes for Jerusalem? Nehemiah was saying, and it's not what it currently is, so we're going to have to do something about it. And so I just really want to encourage us in the rest of the time this morning to stay true to this mission. I kind of really just want to reinforce what we've been saying already over the last few weeks and also to become aware a little bit how there will be opposition to that because opposition to the mission of God will come. And when it comes, we need to stay true to the mission. We need to stay true to what God has called us to do and to be because we could be a lot of other things as a church. We could become a nice bunch of people that meet on a Sunday. We could become a Christian form of the Rotary Club. We could become a a, a bunch of religious people that prop up political agendas we could become an awful lot of things that the church has become, unfortunately, in the day in which we live. But we don't want to be any of those things. We want to be a family of God who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, and that we surrender wholeheartedly to his ways, and that we are shaped by the ways of his kingdom. That's what we want to be. And so when you want to be that, there is opposition to that. That starts to stir up in the town, in the city. <laughs> that starts to stir up opposition. That starts to, because the enemy doesn't like that. Because when you are saying Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, we are not sitting on the throne of our own hearts. Jesus is. Then everything starts to change. And the enemy starts to get a little bit nervous. Because the territory that he has had for far too long is under threat. Because the people of God start to know who they've been called to be in Christ. And they're going to take some of that back. Because Jesus is king. 
And his kingdom is going to come on the earth. And he is making all things new. And the deceit and the blindedness that the enemy wants to bring over the church is going to start being exposed. And people are going to start waking up and being liberated and freed into all that God has created them to be. We want to be a people like Jesus was, demonstrating the kingdom, proclaiming good news, freedom for the captives, teaching the ways of love, healing the sick in all sorts of ways. And so we want to we want to be true to that despite the opposition because you see the church is still the primary way that God wants to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so when the church is advancing when we're not just maintaining a group of nice Christians but when the church is actually moving forward, moving in the new territory, the enemy will resist that. The enemy does not like that. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us of this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers. That word rulers in the Greek, I think, is the word archi, which is where we get our word architect from, which would suggest that there are schemes. The enemy has certain kind of ways of thinking in the powers that be to come against the advancement of the church in the world today, because that's the primary way God's going to see his kingdom break in. Against authorities, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have an enemy, and the enemy does not like it when the church is moving forward. And the enemy schemes, schemes and thinks of ways to resist the movement of the church. Because the hope of the world, I still believe, is a local church. When it gets it right. And when I, say, when, I say the, when I say the church, I'm not just talking about what we do on a Sunday. I'm talking about the church both gathered and scattered Monday to Saturday. Okay? But, and so the enemy wants to resist that and we need to stay true to the mission. Because as, as much as we... It, it's important that we are aware of the devil's schemes, the Bible says. The Bible also tells us, Jesus said, didn't they? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Chris was saying the other night, we were chatting about some stuff, and it reminded me too of how I grew up, thinking that that meant we just needed to batten down the hatches because we were going to get through. You know, I will build my church in the gates of hell. But, you know, it's the, the ones that are in the defense, in a sense, is the, is the devil. Like, you know, gates don't move. Yeah? It's the, it's the enemy's gates that cannot prevail against the advancement of the church. We are on the front foot. We are actually on the offensive. But we are often brought up in environments where we think we're on the defensive. Now, I'm not saying that in some kind of wild, arrogant, triumphalistic way. I'm saying it that we just need to rediscover our confidence as the people of God and move forward. And so, just to talk a little bit more about this kind of sense of opposition and how we stay true. I want, to, I want to look at Nehemiah for a moment, and then I want to finish by looking at Jesus on this kind of Palm Sunday. Um, I've referenced Nehemiah's story, and I've referenced Nehemiah chapter 4 um, a few times already. And uh, it was the point in, 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 the, in the story of Nehemiah and his rebuilding of the walls where they got kind of halfway up. 
And uh, at, at this point, it tells us, it tells us this in Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, so just let me introduce this so you know what I'm talking about. As Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, there's two guys. One's called Sanballat and the other's called Tobiah. And they decide that they are going to ridicule Nehemiah. They basically are the enemy to the project of God that is coming through Nehemiah. And they come and they start to like whisper all these things. And this is what they say. He said, I think this is Sam Ballot, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah then, the Ammonite who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stones, right? (laughs) Here's these... um, Two guys who are coming with negative voices, trying to intimidate. Who do you think you guys are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? Catch yourself on. Sure, even a fox climbing up it could break down those walls, right? And they come with they come with taunts. They come with intimidation. And as we as we uh, plant the church here in Portadown, you, you know, maybe you've heard some of that, have you? Like, what do you think? Two kind of two churches grafting together. Like, what's that all about? And that must be a bit weird. And you know, and I know some of it's just you know curiosity, which is totally good, and it's great that we can share that story. But there's you know, do you ever get do you ever get that kind of sense of like, what, it, taunting? It stir, stirs up strife. And do you ever do you ever find the enemy in our own lives individually? It's you know, once we feel like we're going to do something for God, like, who do you think you are? You couldn't do that. <clears throat> This is the part of the story, though, where they got halfway up. The enemy's starting to get relatively intimidated himself, but he's just starting to show his hand a little bit. And, uh, and so he comes, with these, he comes with these taunts. But at this point, Nehemiah rallies the troops. We've referenced this earlier on in, a lot, in, in near the start he, he, uh, of our journey. He, he gets people praying on the walls more. He gets people with a sword in one hand and a... Um, a, a trial in the other, and he, he gets people spread out around the wall, and he reinforces the the army, and and before they know it, they've they've got the wall halfway up, and um, they, they they build on, and it seems at that particular point that they have pushed back that that, that level of resistance, and so they get on with it. Uh, and then in chapter 5, it tells us, I'm not going to read it, but just if you stick with me here, because I'm going somewhere with this. In chapter 5, it tells us that Nehemiah starts to um, get engaged with the affairs of the city. If you read chapter 5, you read about this incident which happens, which is, um, where's, my, where's my friend? I've missed him the last couple of weeks. <laughs> There's some crazy things happen in church in Africa, but n- never anything like that. But anyway. Um, uh, so in chapter 5, Nehemiah starts to get engaged in the affairs of the city, okay? And so what you read about, you read about these nobles, these people who um, are uh, the elite, they've kind of worked themselves up to the top in Jerusalem, and they're ripping off the poor, basically. They uh, have uh, are charging them big interest rates. They are ripping them off, charging them excessive taxes. And Nehemiah says, this isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. And so he gets involved in the affairs of the city and he starts to challenge them about it. And he says they need to stop doing this and act justly and righteously. So here's what he's doing. He's not just rebuilding the city physically. He's rebuilding the city spiritually. He's doing something about the very fabric of Jerusalem and how it operates as a city. He's rewriting the story of Jerusalem. 
And he, he's, he's doing something about the deep injustices that are there. He's bringing the reign and rule of God. And he's uh, advocating the poor and step, step, stepping up and standing up for the poor. So do you think the devil likes this? Of course he doesn't. Do you think he wants to take Nehemiah out? Of course he does. Do you think he wants to slander Nehemiah's reputation? Of course he does. Do you think those who are in power at the moment, who are enjoying the wealth at the expense of the poor, do you think they're like this? No, of course they don't. And so what we find in chapter 6, and this is what I want to read for the, just the, the second half of this talk this morning. I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 6. There's a few slides here with the text on it. If you've got your Bible with you, you can read it from there. But I'm, I'm gonna, I've got what I want to read on the screens. And it says... It says this, So the enemy comes again. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. <laughs> I just love the detail. You know, I had rebuilt the wall, but just hadn't got the doors on yet. But anyway, Sambalat and Geshem sent me to this message. Sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, which is come down to the plain of Ono. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. That was the proclamation. That apparently Nehemiah has said. Now this report will get back to the king, so come let us meet together. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. <laughs> Don't you love it? It's like, I think Nehemiah has reported it down. It's all in your head. Right? <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. I love this. But I prayed, this is the word of the Lord, I think, for us this morning. But I prayed, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. One day when I went, they're not finished yet. When One day when I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of him, who was shut in at his home, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because of Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. So they'd hired a prophet to come and give a false word. He had, hired, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet... Nodiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th. It's the 25th of the day, isn't it? Isn't it? It's my mom and dad's anniversary. That's how I know. Amazing. This is prophetic, isn't it? You're starting to feel it. 25th. 25th. The Lord speaking. In 52 days. 52 days to rebuild all the walls. 
I love this. When all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. <laughs> the enemy lost his self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Man, it's great, isn't it? It's great encouragement for us. Here we see the enemy trying to discourage like he had done previously in chapter 4, but now he's, he's desperate. Now there's distraction. Now there's deception. They're all almost trying to use the prophet, hiring a prophet to come and give like a false word, making stuff up just to try and slander Nehemiah to get him distracted from his work and to deceive him. He's now using every trick in the book. The attack of the enemy is becoming more obvious. And when the attack of the enemy becomes more obvious, do you know what that means? We think it means, oh no, my goodness, how are we ever going to cope? But when the attack of the enemy uh, hots up, what we start to realize is he's scared. He's showing himself. There weren't two demons, there, there wasn't too many probably demonic, there wasn't probably too much demonic activity until Jesus came to town. Yeah? That's why when he went into every town, people got set free and demons manifested themselves because they knew their game was up. When the atmosphere of heaven moved into town, all the darkness gets exposed because the enemy would rather traffic in areas where he's not known so he can do all kinds of deceit. But God was exposing them through Nehemiah. As I think Bill Johnson says, often the enemy, when we see the enemy at work in a very obvious as well, we think it's his first card, but it's usually his last card. Because yeah? his, his, his time is up when the people of God and the strength of the Spirit are moving in to take back the territory that he has stolen for far too long. And Nehemiah was looking for the gaps. And as an apostolic people, as the same people, that's what we do. We look for the gaps and we go and see them filled with the presence of God. And so the tactics that we see of the enemy in this regard through Symbolic and Tobiah are to distract them from the work, right? The, the enemy wants to distract you from the work. Ironically, the kind of place that they want to take them to is this place called Oh No. Which is, like a, which is like a brilliant little pun for us this morning to play off. Because the place that God wants to bring you is down to the plain of, oh no. Right? In the Northern Ireland negativity, criti- cri- criticism and cynicism. That's where he wants to bring you. In the place of, oh no. And he wants you to get surrounded by other people who love to live in that place. And I, I don't mean to sound critical here, but I don't want to burst your bubble but a lot of those people are in the church. A lot of people who like to live in the plain of oh no are in the church, are in the church today. And they love nothing more than a good oh no session. You know, and often it happens in kind of homes that, that you know, often it doesn't happen in the light. It happens in the dark. And people love a good moan. And they love a good... Um, in order for them to feel a little bit more important, I'll be negative, and if I can get you to join into that negativity, then that will make me feel better. And before you know it, you've got an oh no culture, right? But here's the thing, Jesus called us to be oh yes people, yes to what he's doing. And Nehemiah's yes was so big that nothing was going to distract them when all the oh no's came. And uh, <laughs> we, we don't want to be an oh no 
people. He wants us to go to places of discouragement, criticism, negativity. How many fellow believers do we know? It breaks my heart at the moment. You know, when I think of fellow believers, people that built with me on that wall. People who I served along beside. People who helped us get halfway up. And now they got distracted. And they're somewhere down in the plain of oh no. And they're not in the church anymore. And, you know, we can try and self-justify that in all different kinds of ways. And sometimes it might be for good reason. But even if it is for good reason, you need to get back. Because if you live in the plain of oh no, you're not going to get anything done. And you're going to... You're, you're, you're going to miss your destiny and the destiny of others that God has called you to help lead to him. People who started with the desire to live for Jesus got drawn away. And this is what, you know, this is what the religious spirit will do. Religious kind of political spirit does. It's, it's a counterfeit way of measuring the grace of God. It's a counterfeit way of measuring worth, sorry, outside the grace of God. And we see this in the church, carnal ways of judging ourselves and judging others. But you see, religion can't bring transformation. Only the Spirit of God can bring transformation. Religion only brings conformity. You do what I say and you look like I look. And you make sure you don't do anything outside of that. And if you do, that keeps the system sweet. But that's the kind of spirit that put Jesus on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, it not only exposed our individual sin, but it it exposed the systems at work, and one of them was the temple. The church, which had a system of how to measure people's worth outside the grace of God. And when Jesus came to town, and when Jesus lived this beautiful kingdom, self-sacrificial love, life, it exposed all that. And they couldn't cope with it. And so their envy and their jealousy actually turned to hatred. And so when, even when he's on a cross, the chief priests, the chief priests, they shout up, you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, come on, come down from that. Can you imagine? The people that went to church are the ones that are mocking Jesus on the cross because their sin had been exposed. Because they had went to the plane of oh no and found some other way to measure themselves outside the grace of God and then they measured everybody else. And Jesus comes to expose that. And the thing about it is when freedom comes to town, that spirit will get stirred up. And that spirit will not like the freedom of God. That spirit will not like the liberty that comes where people are set free to be all that God created them to be. And so we may need to listen to this talk in the days ahead again. Because when those days come, when the novelty wears off, (laughs) and we continue to press forward to see a church where anything can happen, where anyone is welcome, when that stirs up resistance, we need to stay true to the mission. We need to not get get drawn into conversations that we don't need to get drawn into. It bothers me slightly today, and I don't have a problem with social media at all, but it does bother me when so many Christians get involved in so many debates that aren't really going to do anything. And it's just one big negative, like, oh no fest, is the only way I can think of describing it. 
It's just, let's have a, just a big oh no. Would somebody just start a conversation that's a big oh yes? And how big is your yes? Because I think God has a yes over every one of your lives that you're going to have to say a thousand no's to turn all those other things down in order to say yes to the thing that God has called you to say yes to. God wants you to be an oh yes person. And when I say oh yes, I don't mean some superficial kind of like, you know, oh, the world's just like jumping from rainbow to rainbow. I don't mean that. I mean, I mean yes to Jesus in the midst of everything that we go through. We're saying yes to Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on the prize. Four times they came to Nehemiah. Come on down to the plain of Ono. Come on over here to this church. This will be better. Come on over here to this conversation. Come on away. He knows he's being distracted from the work, but God has given him and broke his heart for something. He's halfway up. He could walk away and go, I've done a right job there, but no, no. I'm going to finish this work that God has called me to. I'm going to stay on track. I'm not going to be deceived. I'm not going to allow myself, even when it comes in the form of a prophet who's trying to deceive me, I'm going to be discerning enough to know that I'm going to stay true. I'm going to stay fixed. Fixed to see the mission come to pass. To finish the work, we need to stay focused. We need to have no time for those voices. We need to choose well the conversations that we get involved in. What voices we're listening to. What is your yes? Nehemiah provides us with a great inspiration and example of how we can stay true to the mission of how it's not going to do me any good to get involved in that conversation. So I'm just going to stay true, put my head down, and work hard. And I'm not going to allow my own self-importance or my own ego to be stroked just by getting involved in those conversations and going to stay true to what God has called me to. And so in the midst of these conversations, or sorry, these accusations, as we come to a close, I think our prayer today is this, Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen our hands. That's my prayer for us as a church. Lord, strengthen our hands to do this work. Strengthen our hands to stay true to the mission. Strengthen our hands to be an apostolic, sent people that go to the gaps to bring the law. Strengthen our hands, Jesus. Strengthen our hands. Strengthen our, our hearts, our minds. In the end, we're told that with that kind of focus, with that kind of determination, When all our enemies heard about this, the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized the work that was being done was being done with the help of God. It's great when you know that the enemy knows that your work that you're doing is the work of God. Sometimes you wonder, don't you, in the enemy's ranks to have little conversations or... These guys don't really know, you know, that they meet together, sing a few songs and all of that, but they're not really sure what they're doing. So we don't really need to worry. But when the enemy starts to lose confidence, because they know that there's a people who are declaring Jesus as king and know that this work is coming right from the throne of heaven, then then he's scared. Then, then he starts to throw all the toys out of the pram. Then you'll start to see all sorts of stuff coming at you. And it's easy to get intimidated by that. But you know what? It's his last card, not his first card. And I think we'll probably see more of that in the days ahead. And so we need to love one another well. Because there are strongholds, spirits, territorial territorial spirits, 
<laughs> around this town, around this city, that aren't best pleased what we're up to. In the word that came a number of a couple of months ago, that the rules of engagement have changed as we've planted over here and as we try to gather to see something happen in this wider area, as the rules of engagement have changed, some of the toys come flying out of the pram when it comes to the enemy. And so we need to be one mind, one accord, one-hearted, watching each other's backs, praying for one another, standing with each other. But a Friday night lights, clear eyes and full hearts. Clear eyes and full hearts for where the Lord is leading us to. And I, I feel like some of you have already experienced some of this. I know some of you have. I know since we've planted the church, started the church, things have felt like they've got tougher rather than easier. It's interesting that, isn't it? But in the context of this story, it starts to make a bit of sense, doesn't it? And maybe you felt distracted, and maybe you felt the enemy said, he's trying to bring you to the place of, oh, no. Maybe just in the, in the, in the, in the way he tries to torment. Or, or maybe he sent some people to distract you. Maybe he, he sent some voices to whisper into your ear. And they don't realize they're doing it. Remember, or, you remember that verse, a wrestle isn't against flesh and blood. It's, you know, there's dark, there's dark forces. The, the enemy doesn't like what God's people are doing. And so he may have sent some voices. So you have to discern those. And you have to politely, but assertively say, I'm not going there. I'm not going down to the plane of, oh no, I'm going to stay in this place of the Lord's yes over my life. And I feel like you have been experiencing that because you're in a place of intensive training for the days that are ahead. I think God is preparing you because the rules of engagement have changed. And God needs some people that were, you know, a few ranks back, if you like, from the front line. And he's saying to some of you, it's time for the front line now. It's time to, to lead this church and to lead this people into where the gaps are. And so the prayer, I think, that the Lord wants you to pray today is, Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Help me to see this through. Help me to discern the opposition. And help me to see it on through. And as I finish, in the same way as we're inspired by Nehemiah this morning, <clears throat> we can take this one step further and think about Jesus. Who on this day that we remember Palm Sunday, he went through the crowds, didn't he? And they sung Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they laid down the palm branches as he entered Jerusalem, built up to the Passover. But you know what? That worship of Jesus as the King and as the Messiah, at that point they were starting to believe this could be the Messiah. But you see, that worship stirred up something in the city. The Pharisees said to one another, the religious spirit kicks in and goes, look at the popularity of this man. Jealousy is stirred up. We're losing control of the people. And so the rest of that week, they start to whip stuff up. Accusations about Jesus that just aren't true. If you do a study on how Jesus is crucified, they break every rule in the book. Like every law that they came up with that God had given them that they so resolutely wanted to defend against other people, they broke every one, putting Jesus on the cross. So deep was their conceitedness and their deep jealousy of Jesus, and sin got exposed. 
And not only the sin of individuals, but the sin of institutions got exposed. And they put Jesus on the cross. But what did Jesus do? In the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, think about this this week as you come towards Easter. What did Jesus do? He could have just ran off with the crowds that loved him, but he didn't. Straight as a die towards the cross, stayed true to his mission, set his face like a flint. And even though it broke his human soul, nevertheless, Father, may there be any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes right through. He fulfills his mission. He goes right through. He doesn't get distracted, even though his friends fall asleep in him when he needed them the most. Even though one of the twelve disown him, forsake him, hand him over to the Pharisees, he stays true. Aren't you glad Jesus stayed true? Aren't you glad that Jesus prayed that prayer? And here's the thing, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, this is how you get a revived church. This is how you see an awakening of God. Nevertheless, not my will, not my popularity, not me getting involved in conversations that make me feel better about myself. No, no. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we are the people to pray that prayer, that's how you get a revival. That's how you get an awakening of God. And so, as we finish, I want us to think about how this morning we could respond to the Lord to stand true to the mission that he's called us to, be, to, to fulfill, which is to rewrite the story of this city, to rebuild the walls of this city, spiritually and physically, in every way that the inbreaking of the kingdom would come. And we'd stay true to that mission as a sent people. We would be reckless in our love and that we would pray that prayer, Lord, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. I'd love to finish. Maybe, Clara, you would come and and lead us. We're going to finish with the song. Um, um, But just just where you're sitting today, why don't you just... you just take a moment, just when you close your eyes, just maybe help you concentrate and focus. Just in these moments, I'd love you to, I'd love you just to allow the Holy Spirit even to speak to you. What are some of the key things He's been saying to you this morning? And maybe particularly how you can stay true to the mission. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning you want to take a moment to, you know, like like I have to do. Maybe you want to take a moment and just even repent from the times when we've just got tempted to go down to the plane of oh no. Actually, maybe just every single one of us, we just need to do that for a moment. Just say, Lord, we're, we're sorry for the days that we we listened to the voices of the enemy distracting us from the work. The Lord doesn't heap shame on us. He just invites us to come and to confess. 
And uh, if you're one of those people this morning that needs to come back to Jesus in a, in a very in a very obvious way, or if you're not a, a believer in Jesus and you want to say yes to him and not no anymore, this is your opportunity just to come to the Lord, put your trust in him. Just invite him into your heart tonight. Say, Lord, I'm tired of saying no to you and I'm trying to live my own way. And God, I want to say yes to you this morning. Thank you for your work on the cross. Come and, come and save me. Come and live in my heart. And for every single one of the rest of us, I just believe... You know, as we've done that now, the Lord wants us to open up as yes over our lives, individually and collectively. And I just want to pray for you, God. I, I ask Holy Spirit that even, Lord, as we, um, Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray that you would just open up a fresh yes over everyone's life in this room, God. God, I pray that your yes would be so big, beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, God. We'd be captured and drawn in and caught up in your yes over our lives, over our families. And God, as we grasp that individually, God, I pray that the vision and desire and destiny for our lives would be so much bigger, Lord, to disciple the nations that we could ever imagine. Lord, that you would lead us forward with fervency and focus and determination in these days. And God, as a people together, I ask that the yes that you're calling us to say yes to, God, for Portadown Down and for this area, God, that we want to say yes to you, God. We want to align our hearts with where you're leading us and move forward with that level of determination. So strengthen our hands. Why don't we stand for a moment? Maybe just where you are, just stand with me, would you? Just before we sing, maybe in your own way, why don't we just ask the Lord? Maybe you even want to hold your hands out in front of you if you're comfortable. And why don't you just ask the Lord wherever you are, just say, Lord, would you strengthen my hands? Strengthen our hands, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Strengthen our hands, oh God. Fresh power, and fresh anointing, Strengthen our hands to do your work, Lord. Strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hearts, our minds, oh God. Give us a one-mindedness. Give us a, a one desire, God. 